You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. The battle for East Ukraine has begun. Kharkiv and the surrounding areas are under attack. Eleven civilians have known to have died, among them a seven-year-old child. That's according to the regional military governor. Satellite images show an eight-mile-long Russian convoy just outside of Kharkiv. It consists of armoured vehicles and trucks with towed artillery and support equipment. That's according to Maxar Technologies. And at the helm of this new offensive, a brutal new general. Alexander Devornikov, who became known as the Butcher of Syria, is notorious for inflicting atrocities on civilians. In the face of this latest onslaught, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky continues to appeal for more weaponry, this time addressing the South Korean parliament. Ukraine needs support for its military, including planes and tanks. South Korea can help Ukraine. South Korea has various defense systems that could help defend against Russian tanks, ships and missiles. We would be grateful if South Korea could help us to fight Russia. If Ukraine can have these weapons, they will not only save the lives of ordinary people, but they'll save Ukraine. Overnight, another railway station in the east of Ukraine was targeted by Russian rocket fire. Rail officials are not providing the precise location. They were told no one was hurt in the attack, but trains, tracks and power lines were damaged. And over the weekend, a Russian strike destroyed the airport in Dnipro, a city in central east Ukraine. Columns of smoke there visible, as you can see from the site. There's no word at this moment on possible casualties. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Austrian Chancellor Karl Niehammer has been meeting President Putin. Over the weekend, the Chancellor met with Ukrainian President Zelensky and visited the town of Bucha. Calling for a full investigation, he described it as a place of war crimes. Nick Robertson joins me now. Nick, great to have you with us. The first meeting, I believe, of an EU leader and President Putin since the invasion began and the Austrian Chancellor not pulling his punches on what he believes is taking place and what he wants to see. Yeah, he certainly arrives face to face with President Putin with the moral authority to confront Putin on what his forces have been doing in Bucha and other places um, in Ukraine. And that is what the message is going to be. We heard from the uh, Austrian foreign minister earlier saying that uh, the chancellor is going into that meeting to look Putin in the eye. So eye to eye to tell him the truth. He says that Putin should actually want to hear the truth. It's not clear if Putin will actually be listening. And indeed, the Kremlin's already giving indications that they're not going to make this a, a, a much of a public event, if you will, that the meeting will be closed to the press, um, that they're not expecting any comments uh, by the leaders publicly afterwards, at least not together and not, and not in Moscow. Uh, so the Kremlin's apparently trying to sort of downplay the significance and impact of this. But really, the, the message here isn't just for President Putin, it's for all the Russian leadership and also for, for the Russian people to explain what's going on. Um, the, the German Chancellor Niehammer has said that these are war crimes that have been committed in Bucha and in other places and that there should be accountability. And in which case he really is pointing the finger here at President Putin, if not him, then his forces. So uh, it's hard to see that this will actually 
change what President Putin is trying to achieve on the ground. But it is, in the words of some of the other European foreign ministers we've heard from going into a, a meeting this morning, a necessary thing, a thing that's required and needed, um, if not, if only to try to sort of bring about an end to uh, the current conflict, to get a ceasefire and open humanitarian corridors. And from what we understand from the German Chancellor himself, that realistically is going to be his, his priority. Try to get a ceasefire, try to get those humanitarian corridors over, try to save as many lives as he can, Julia. Yeah, your point about messaging, I think, is very important too. But what about President Putin? What's the benefit of him holding this meeting as he looks towards the Russian people and his messaging back at home to, to the domestic environment here? And to, I think to your broader point, which is obviously what we all are hoping for here, can anything be achieved in terms of a ceasefire evacuation corridors in your, in your mind? There's certainly the scope for it, and it's within uh, Russia's gift uh, in, in cities like Mariupol to, to provide those corridors and other places where they're shelling. If they stop shelling, then the, the humanitarian uh, relief can, can happen. But as we've seen, Russia's uh, seems intent on destroying property, intent on uh, trying to scare uh, civilians so much that they, as soon as they get an opportunity, they'll leave. Russia controls that opportunity. Opportunity. Um, it, you know, for the fact that the Kremlin uh, tells us that this meeting is not going to have cameras present in the room, uh, you know, often we've seen Putin meeting and greeting with leaders pre-war. That's what he would do. There'd be a narrative on state TV. Then there'd be perhaps comments afterwards. The fact the Kremlin is telling us they're not planning for that this time really seems to indicate that they're going to absolutely control the message, no surprise. And whatever message comes out of this um, would be likely to fall into the category of the Kremlin saying, look, we're not cut off, we're not that isolated, here we are, here's President Putin, his telling the Austrian Chancellor, Austrians have long been friends of ours, they're neutral, uh, militarily neutral, going back decades and decades to towards the Soviet Union at least. Um, and to try to sort of spin this as a, as a plus for Russia. Um, you know, that doesn't hold any water in the international community. Uh, but I think the Kremlin seems concerned and awkward about the reason that they know that the Austrian chancellor is coming. And, and as he says, that's to tell Putin the truth, to look him in the eye, mm. tell him about the war crimes that is witnessed on the ground, tell him about the testimony that is heard. And of course, the Kremlin doesn't want any of that leaking to the, the broader Russian population. And that's why it will be so tightly managed. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. Now, cleanup efforts have started at a train station in Kramatorsk after a deadly Russian attack on Friday. With the station out of service, civilians are now trying to find other ways out. As CNN's Ben Weedman reports. The air raid siren rings out over a scene of carnage past. In Kramatorsk's railway station, a ripped shoe, a discarded hat, a cane left behind. They came to the station with only what they could carry, hoping to reach safer ground, but nearly 60 never left. Lives cut short by a missile, on it someone scrawled in Russian, for the children. 4,000 people were here, waiting for a train west when the strike happened. The massacre accelerating the exodus.
Most of the residents of Kramatorsk have left the city, having been urged to do so by local authorities, as this part of the country, the entirety of eastern Ukraine, braces for what could be a massive Russian offensive. At the city's bus station, Nikolai, a volunteer, has been helping with the evacuation. For him, news of the pullback of Russian forces around the capital, Kiev, was bittersweet. When I heard about Kiev, that they leave Kiev, I was happy, you know. But then I realized a couple seconds later that they're moving to, to Donbass or their forces. I'm a little bit, I'm not, I can't say that I'm scary, but I'm worried about about my people, about people, about mothers, about grandparents. Some are heading west, others north to the town of Slovyansk, where trains still run. Oksana and a friend and their children are bound for Lviv in the far west. There's a lot of bombing here, says Oksana. I'm afraid for the children. The children, thankfully, still children. A handful of adult relatives stay behind far more aware of the danger ahead. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Slovyansk, Eastern Ukraine. As we've mentioned, the latest Russian offensive in the Donbass region in the east has begun. This after Moscow appointed a new war commander who has a record of brutality against civilians in Syria. Phil Black joins us now from Lviv. Phil, whether it's the attacks, the shelling that we've seen over the weekend in strategic evacuation points, airports, a train station again, or this appointment of a new general that's well known, it does seem the the effect is to try and continue to spread fear and also send the message that there's no backing down, there's no retreat here. In fact, they're on the offensive. I think that's right, Julia, and I think this is likely to be shaping up as <clears throat> the most... Uh, the most uh, focused offensive that we've seen of this war so far by Russia. That is what <clears throat> Ukrainian officials in the East are expecting. They say there is a continued build-up of forces there almost daily. We've had recent satellite images which point to a convoy travelling to the east of Kharkiv, travelling south towards what is expected to be a key uh, line of advance as Russia tries to break through and squeeze Ukraine's defenders in that region. And as you touched on, yes, a, a new general has been appointed to have overall battlefield command in this country, someone with a history of, well, brutal operations when Russia intervened in the Syrian civil war. All of this builds up and backs up what has been the assessment from Western officials and analysts around the world who think that Russia is looking to make quick, tangible pro progress here, that Vladimir Putin wants something uh, to point to by May the 9th, which is a key annual uh, public holiday in Russia, Victory Day, traditionally the day that Russia marks the defeat of Nazi Germany, but more recently ha has come to really morphed into a broader celebration of Russian military glory uh, and might. So that is why the expectation is that uh, we're going to see some form of very dramatic shift uh, by Russia within the coming weeks, Julia. And there was a lot of discussion over the weekend about this region of the country being that much more difficult to defend by the Ukrainians as well. What can you say about that and also the efforts to, to get those that want to leave and those to evacuate from this part of the country further west? 
I think the nature of the defence <clears throat> is going to be challenged because it is going to be this more consolidated operation. There is going to be a greater a depth, a greater, a greater amount of firepower focused in one area across a relatively, relatively smaller stretches of territory at one time, more so than we have seen uh, in this war so far when uh, it has been marked really by ex overextended Russian lines that have been uh, relatively easy and vulnerable to Ukrainian attack. Uh, moving around in a very light, agile way, being able to strike and move away before Russian forces have really had an idea of what's going on. This is expected to involve much heavier firepower consolidated in a very specific area. That's the challenge from a military point of view. And then from a civilian point of view, the challenge is getting civilians out of there before any of this really kicks off. There are still many thousands of people in this region and the urgent call from Ukrainian officials is for them to get out now as quickly as possible and of course it hasn't been made easy as an operation as a logistical exercise by Russia's repeated strikes against key points of infrastructure notably the rail lines in recent days we saw that strike at Kramatorsk on Friday and uh, overnight we're told by an official from Ukraine state rail company that another station in the east was shelled by Russian forces there was danger uh, there was damage there uh, as well so all of that makes the job harder but these attacks also prove the urgency uh, the need to get these people out before the next phase of the operation really begins. Bob Black, thank you so much for that report there. Now, the economic consequences of all this. The World Bank sees Ukraine's economy is expected to shrink by almost half this year. Meanwhile, rating agency S&P has downgraded Russia's credit rating on foreign debt to what's known as selective default after Moscow attempted to make bond payments in rubles rather than in dollars. Anna Stewart joins us on this. Anna, let's talk about Ukraine first. What more did the World Bank have to say? It's a really detailed report looking at the impact the war is going to have on Ukraine's economy, but also further afield. And it was interesting. It says that Ukraine's economy, as you say, will shrink by nearly half this year. But actually, there is a worst case projection. If the war escalates, they believe the economy could contract by 75 percent. Also, major consequences for Russia, which it believes that the economy will shrink by 11 percent and in the worst case scenario, 20 percent this year. Unsurprising looking at Ukraine and our reporting on the ground, of course, you would see that kind of impact. I think you spoke to the Ukrainian finance minister just a couple of weeks ago, and he said a third of the economy simply wasn't working. And of course, it wouldn't be if it's under bombardment. Agricultural fields, this whole sector has been hugely disrupted. And there's, there's the fact that lots of shipping from the Black Sea has simply been halted. And the fact that four million refugees have left Ukraine and are elsewhere, and that number could increase. And those that remain behind, many people are, of course, walking, working towards the war effort. So you're going to see a huge impact there in terms of the workforce. Now, the World Bank projects a fifth of the nation in Ukraine will be living in poverty this year. That is up from less than 2%. It means Oh, I think we've just lost Anna's microphone there. Anna, if you can hear me, we apologise for that, but we, we can no longer hear you. So I will let you go and we'll see if we can, uh, we can fix that. Thank you so much for that, Anna, there. All right, coming up, rebuilding Ukraine from the rubble. We discuss with the nation's former minister of Ukraine. It's just how you go about it. Next.
Welcome back as the focus shifts to the Russian offensive in the east. Ukrainians in cities and towns in the north are assessing those that they lost and the cost of rebuilding in the aftermath of Russian attacks. Vladimir Omelan joins us now. He was Ukraine's Minister of Infrastructure from 2016 to 2019. He's currently volunteering with the country's territorial defence forces. Vladimir, thank you for joining the show. As I mentioned there, you are part of the domestic defence forces too. So as we start talking about the Russian offensive in the east, I want to ask you what you've seen and how your people are doing there in the surrounding areas around Kyiv, which I know is, is where you've been defending. Um, hello, Juliet. Pleasure is mine. Thank you for inviting me for your show. Uh, picture is really awful. Mm. Uh, tens of thousands of Ukrainians died, and most of them were touched before death uh, by Russian soldiers. So it's not one or two cases. There are thousands of them all over Ukraine. General Prosecution Office already registered more than 6,000 uh, violations of laws by the Russian uh, army. And there will be more, unfortunately. And definitely it's a huge challenge for the whole nation because we see how civil uh, are treated by Russians. It's kind of barbarians, nothing to do with 21st century and uh, some civilized country. We do understand that we are fighting hard. Vladimir, are you seeing people come back, those that perhaps headed further to the West to, to escape the violence, now coming back? And to your point, I think, given what we've seen, are people still afraid that perhaps Russian troops come back? They focus on the East, but then they're, they're not done with Kyiv and the surrounding you know, areas. Uh, when we liberated uh, Kyiv region a uh, week ago uh, and talked to Ukrainians which survived during Soviet of Russian occupation, uh, first thing they asked us that are you sure that Russians are not going back? Because they passed through enormous challenges and uh, it was very tough under Russian occupation. What we see right now is that uh, many Ukrainian families left for the West and right now in the European Union or United States, uh, my family as well, but they are going to come back to Ukraine uh, because we now as uh, men are fighting for Ukraine to uh, get away from Russian troops. But the big issue, where to they coming back? because many houses are destroyed, uh, civil infrastructure is destroyed, and it's very, uh, very difficult to find a single place in Ukraine untouched by war. Maybe Western Ukraine survived better, but still Western Ukraine was also under missile attacks. Yeah, the problem is where do people go? How concerned are you Absolutely. by what we, how concerned are you by what we, what we now see? And what's going to come in, in the east of the country as, as Russia focuses its forces there? A uh, big battle and I hope final battle of the 21st century is coming in the eastern Ukraine. Uh, we see that Russians do concentrate most troops. Uh, they uh, concentrated to attack Ukraine. They failed to capture whole Ukraine. That right now they are trying to uh, destroy our forces in the east. Uh, I hope that uh, assistance, especially military assistance, will be timely coming from the West, uh, because otherwise it will be very difficult for us to survive. 
and we are under permanent bombing. Mariupol is dying, not literally, but in, in reality. And uh, we do understand that recent appointment of Mr. Dvornikov, who is uh, supposed to be a marshal of the victory in Putin's mind, will only increase uh, losses of, uh, among civilians. Because this is exactly what Dvornikov was doing in Chechnya and Syria, uh, hitting civilians and killing civilians, and only after trying to uh, fight uh, for an army. Uh, I believe that uh, Ukrainians will overcome this challenge, challenge as well, but definitely it's very difficult, uh, and we do understand the tragedy of nowadays history. I think one of the ways to illustrate, and we've seen many examples of it, that the tragedy, is, as you describe it, and you're very active on social media, was a, a picture of a little girl that you tweeted last week. And I want to show my viewers just to give people a sense of, of what families are going through. It was a little girl with, with writing on her back, and it was family details, I believe, in case the adults that she's with are, are taken or, or they're killed and the child survives. And, and I think you said it best where you said, I don't really know how to endure this anymore. Vladimir, just did you meet that family or was that just an example of, of something that you saw and have seen? Uh, unfortunately, it's only an example. As I told you, that it's not kind of rare case or unique case. It's a typical situation in Ukraine uh, starting on the 24th of February. Uh, we lost almost 200 kids in this war and uh, hundreds of kids are without families and without parents just because Russians decided to invade Ukraine and to kill every Ukrainian. This is the policy of uh, Moscow. They publicly speak that there is no life uh, for Ukrainian families and for Ukrainians because Ukraine should be destroyed. And I was amused today to hear Mr. Lavrov, foreign minister of Russia, stating that the aim of this war in Ukraine was to fight the United States. And, uh, you know, it's also true, because in Ukraine, Russia wants to destroy democracy and wants to uh, give new uh, reality to the world. And I believe that, especially in Ukraine, Russia will be destroyed and there will be chance for democracy to survive and there will be chance for united states together with the european union together with ukraine to overcome the biggest challenge of the 21st century because it's not a war in ukraine itself it's a war in europe and russia is fighting democracy here i think many people would agree with you the other battle to come is the rebuilding of ukraine the fabric, the social fabric, I think, that has been devastated by the losses that you've suffered, but also physically to allow people to go on with their lives and to rebuild and to work. Do you have any sense of, of the time it's going to take, of the cost that is going to have to be borne in order to rebuild the country as you're looking around and surveying the damage? No, the most thing, thing in this war is that Russia do it on purpose. So it's not kind of uh, casual destruction of some fabrics. They do impact uh, all industry and economy in Ukraine. 
just to make it uh, without any uh, prospect for the future. Uh, definitely, it will take long time to rebuild. In my uh, opinion, at least five up to ten years. But I want that Russia pays for every destruction they did in Ukraine. Because it will be very good lesson for any other nation. If you want to invade another country, you will pay for it. And it's really crucial that all those frozen uh, assets of Russia as a state and uh, Russian businessmen should be not only frozen, but also directed into international fund to rebuild Ukraine now. That they do understand that those hundreds of billions money stolen from Russian citizens will be not wasted for their luxury living, houses and yachts, but to rebuild what they did with army and weapons. Uh, I hope that it will be done very soon, because otherwise Europe and United States will have another problem after the war. You help us a lot with weapons, and we do appreciate with that, and more weapons to come. But Russia should pay for that, not U.S. taxpayers. Vladimir, powerful message, sir. Thank you. Stay safe, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank we'll you. We'll together. Thank you. Coming up, a former high-level Kremlin official turned Putin critic on how the Ukraine crisis might end from Putin confident to Putin target. An inside look at the Russian president's grip on power. Next. Welcome back. Ukraine's president says tens of thousands of people have been killed in the southern city of Mariupol. Volodymyr Zelensky told the South Korean parliament the city has been destroyed. All this as satellite images show an eight-mile-long Russian military convoy nearing the northeastern city of Kharkiv, where heavy fighting has been reported today. President Putin's latest military maneuvers come as more Western firms announce their departure from Russia. French banking giant Sokgen saying it's selling its business interests there to a firm with ties to a Russian oligarch. Rating agency Standard & Poor's also saying Russia effectively defaulted on its sovereign debt when it offered foreign bondholders payment in rubles rather than in dollars. Russia's finance minister insisting today his country is doing everything it can to make payments and says Moscow is ready to take legal action. Joining us now is Mikhail Kasinov. He served as Russia's prime minister and minister of finance in Vladimir Putin's first term as president. He's now a Putin critic and has left Russia due to safety concerns. Mikhail, great to have you on the show. Thank you, sir, for joining us. We are yes, looking hello. at an impending... We're looking at it. Welcome. We're looking at an impending Russian default in addition to everything else that's taken place. How do you think President Putin will view and assess the past six weeks? Yeah, that's clear. Mr. Putin wants to avoid sanctions. And in fact, uh, everyone knows that Russia, Putin's Russia right now, despite of sanctions, Russia gets every day one billion US dollar as a payment for oil and gas. And Mr. Putin doesn't want to use this uh, inflow for an exchange to pay on the bonds on due date. He wants to overcome sanctions and he wants uh, just the reserves to be unfrozen and to pay on that. That is, that is his fight with you. First of all, just America reserves 
America frozen the, the, the foreign exchange reserves of Central Bank, international reserves of Russia. I think it's clear just he's fighting for this. And, then, and that will be breach of, of the contract, of course. The bonds couldn't be served in rubles. They should be served in dollars. They're denominated in dollars. That's clear. That's international, not, not practice. That's a contract. I mean, the Kremlin spokesperson played it down last week and said, look, we've got the money. We just can't pay it. And to your point, that's part of the, the challenge of the sanctions and the pressure that they're putting on the economy. Do you think Putin cares if the country defaults on foreign debt at this stage? Uh, I don't think he cares much about this because just uh, the sanctions imposed already creating big, big problems for the whole economy. Uh, and uh, within a few months, all every Russian uh, will feel it. Right now, of course, it's damage to financial system. In a few months, the economy would be destabilized uh, in a great extent because of many companies. More than 400 foreign companies stopped their operations in Russia. It means just the industrial chains destroyed. It means some products which usually was uh, uh, produced in Russia would not be produced. And uh, there will be a, a deficit of some products. And in fact, uh, Russian industry cannot replace everything what we imported. And right now, just import dropped considerably. And in fact, just uh, foreign, foreign currency is not on a demand anymore in Russia. That's why ruble is um, appreciated uh, heavily within one week. That's, that's not because of the reality. That's because of artificial, I would say, um, establishing, establishment of, of, of the rates by the central bank. But there is no demand for, for, for uh, dollar and the euro because just uh, uh, central bank and Putin issued his decree frozen, uh, not allowing people to, to, to spend money. Just only 10,000 ruble uh, uh, for, 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 for six period time and uh, $6,000 for six period time. It means just uh, we're coming back to Soviet time when it was artificial exchange of ruble to dollar was established at that time. That is some reminds uh, already uh, old, old period, old Soviet Union. Unfortunately, that's the case that uh, Putin create, created a great problem for Russia uh, at all these act- his activities, contrary to a long-standing national interests of Russia and Russian people. Mikhail, these are the economic consequences. What about the political consequences? Because the Austrian chancellor is, is meeting virtually with President Putin today. He's going to push for a ceasefire. What would be the political consequences for President Putin, given everything you know about the workings of the Kremlin and how he holds power of negotiating a ceasefire at this moment and perhaps reestablishing everything to how it was before he invaded. What would be the political cost to Putin? Uh, for Mr. Putin, it's crucially important not to be viewed as defeated. That's why he needs a victory. And you know, just we're coming to, to, to May month. Uh, the 9th of May, that's a victory day in Russia. And in fact, by that time, Putin should demonstrate to all people of Russia especially those uh, deep Russians, as we call them, the, the most conservative Russians who continue to support Putin, to demonstrate to them victory. Putin badly needs victory these years. How big a victory? Mikhail, how big uh, a victory? That's what, I'm, that's what I'd, I, I'd like to explain to you. 
uh, he lost legitimacy inside the country. He cannot produce any victory inside the country. Victory inside the country it means improvement of, of standards of living of Russians. That's why he tried to, I would say, raise legitimacy outside. It means victory outside. Uh, now just we're talking about potential victory on this particular devastating war. I think just the minimum uh, minimum achievement that, that could be to expand occupation of Donbass up to the the, the borders of uh, the administrative borders of these two regions. Uh, that is the minimum. That will not be uh, seen as a great victory, but Russian propaganda would produce it as a victory. The second uh, uh, ranking victory it could be creating addition to Donbass, creating a land corridor between uh, Crimea and Donbass. That will be seen as victory and propaganda will produce this as an absolute victory. But the maximum, that is to cut Ukraine completely from the Black Sea and to fight and occupy um, Nikolaev and, uh, and Odessa. That will be difficult, but it depends to, to what extent Ukrainians will continue to resist tough resistance, which shocked Putin, in fact, he didn't expect this, and how the West would support Ukrainian, Ukraine right now with the military equipment, not to allow Putin to invade further on. That, mm. If it happens, that would be a really great victory for Putin. That will be some kind of manifestation of Putin's victory. That will be that what he wanted to achieve. Unfortunately, that could be a case of that, but I'd like to believe that Ukrainian fighters would continue to uh, to, to have a tough resistance, and with, with the support, they would not allow Putin to implement any of those. Mm. Mikhail Kasinov, a former Russian Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, so thank you for joining us today. Okay, let's move on. France is bracing for a crucial runoff at presidential election, the centrist incumbent against a far-right rival who's gaining momentum. We're live in Paris with the details next. Welcome back. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the stories making headlines around the world. French President Emmanuel Macron and far-right candidate Marine Le Pen came out on top in Sunday's presidential election in France. They're set to face each other in a runoff election later this month. It could be a tight race. Jim Bitterman joins us now from Paris. Jim, great to have you with us. What was quite fascinating about this was the sheer quantity of people that vote for far-right parties and far-left parties, which leaves a very divided nation and what looks to be a very close runoff between the top two candidates. Absolutely, Julia. And we started to see this campaign, this campaign that's going to go on for the next two weeks until the final runoff vote on the 24th, uh, start last night, in fact, because Emmanuel Macron, in his victory speech last night, and he did win, he won by 4.7 percentage points uh, over, uh, over Marine Le Pen. Uh, nonetheless, in his victory speech, he aimed his, uh, his remarks directly at Marine Le Pen. Here's what he had to say about her. I want a France which inscribes itself in a strong Europe, which continues to form alliances with great democracies to defend itself, not a France that exited from Europe would have for its only allies the international populists and xenophobes. That's not us. 
And uh, in fact, uh, he was, uh, when I say he was aiming at it, Marine Le Pen, she has taken positions against Europe in the past. Uh, she, they're still on her party platform's uh, website. There's still a manifesto saying that France should get out of the integrated command of NATO, uh, that, uh, that uh, Russia should be an ally to find peace in Europe. Uh, so a lot of things that uh, don't go uh, very well at all with the kind of France that um, Emmanuel Macron is, uh, is seeing uh, in the future. And that that voters may see too. In any case, uh, he was on the campaign trail this morning. He was already out in northeastern France, almost to Belgium, and uh, kind of forced her, uh, Marine Le Pen, to go out on the campaign trail as well. So the, the campaigning is off and running, uh, and it's probably going to be very intense here in the next two weeks. Julia? I mean, the vision for France and for Europe is starkly different, to your point, under these two leaders. Uh, and beyond that, I think whoever wins in terms of policy the sheer fractured nature of society in the country makes ruling difficult either way. Exactly. I think that's that's very true. I think when you talk to French voters, uh, especially the rural urban divide, I mean, Macron was getting most of his votes from the big cities. Uh, Marine Le Pen is out in the rural areas. She's very popular out there and Macron very unpopular. There's a lot of anti-Macronism out there. Uh, so uh, there, that's going to be one of the big uh, questions. It's a little bit like the United States, the situation in the United States, in the sense that you've got uh, the rural populations that vote one way and the urban population that vote another. Uh, so it's it's going to be a, a good campaign, I think, and at least as far as the journalists are concerned, we're going to see a, a lot of fireworks here as we build up. Uh, one of the things I should just say is that Marine Le Pen has kind of an uphill battle here, and that is, where is she going to find the votes? There was only one of the defeated candidates. There were 12 candidates yesterday. Ten of them were defeated, so we could get these top two run in the runoff. Uh, and uh, the other candidates have pretty much endorsed Macron one way or another. Another, uh, the uh, only person that did in, uh, endorse and, 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 and I think invite his voters to uh, speak to uh, to vote for uh, Marine Le Pen, and that was Zemmour, the far right candidate, who has a, a lot of similar ideas to uh, Marine Le Pen. So uh, that's what I think is going to be happening over the next two weeks. Here we'll see, and that that's one of the problems that she faces. And the other problem is the big debate. There's always a big debate between the top two candidates, and uh, Macron's thought to be, and certainly in 2007. Proved to be a much better debater than Marine Le Pen. Julia? Mm. It's going to be a fascinating couple of weeks. Jim Bitterman, thank you so much for that. Now to Shanghai, who will start to ease days of lockdown in some areas despite reporting a record number of cases on Sunday. Restrictions will be partly lifted in neighborhoods that haven't reported infections in one or two weeks, but they'll continue to be enforced in neighborhoods where cases have been confirmed over the past seven days. CNN's David Cover is with us from Shanghai himself. David, great to have you with us. The human cost of China's COVID policy in certain cases now being broadcast all over social media, and this is just a fraction of the people that are in lockdown, and you felt the consequences yourself, too. We're living in lockdown right now. And, and mm. I just got a message from my community worker that's the only way you can go in and out here. And they told me that I had a food delivery come. So right after this, I'm going to go pick up that food delivery. It's very rare that we get these. So we have to take advantage when we have them. You know, Julia, if you thought Wuhan 2020 was bad and you and I talked throughout that period, well, welcome to Shanghai 2022. This has been like no other lockdown. And in the country's cosmopolitan and, and most affluent financial hub of all places, this is happening. 
The door behind me, this is my exit to the alleyway, and I heard them late last night unwrapping tape and putting it on the door, along with my neighbor's doors, placing a paper seal to keep it closed. Now, some buildings with positive cases in the city are actually locked shut from the outside using a bicycle lock or padlocks. The biggest issue here, though, has been food shortages. It's really difficult to source food with stores being closed, and you've got delivery drivers who are, like us, in lockdown. So neighbors, well, we're now coming together, and we try and source food directly from suppliers. We buy in bulk. There have been, for some, a few government handouts, but not enough, and that's led to residents who are under lockdown demanding supplies as food shortages here have worsened. Some were shouting, we are starving, we are starving. Julia, this is Shanghai. And a city leader over the weekend choked up at a news conference, apologizing to the city's more than 25 million residents for failing to meet expectations. She went on to promise improvements. Now, one thing to keep in mind is Beijing is now in charge. China's zero COVID policy, which we've talked about for many months now, if not now two years, it's a directive straight from the top. President Xi Jinping himself wants the virus stopped. So there's this military mobilization now that's underway. And it's aimed to make more than 100 makeshift hospitals here in Shanghai with capacity to hold more than 160,000 people. Now, that's impressive. State media is portraying it as such. And they're also portraying an orderly, sterile environment. The reality from folks on the ground, and we've spoken with them, shows cramped and unsanitary conditions. So how does this end? And when? Well, Julia, you mentioned officials announcing today plans to begin lifting lockdowns on certain neighborhoods. That's still going to be really restrictive, and it's not nearly enough to bring this city back to life anytime soon. Yeah, you can relax those measures, but you've got to have the hospital surge capacity in place in order to be able to cope with those that get sick, or you're going to have perhaps worse problems. David, thank you for being there, and uh, thank you for bringing us that report papered into his home temporarily. Thank you, David. <laughs> Pakistan's parliament has voted to appoint former opposition leader Shabazz Sharif as the country's new prime minister. It comes a day after his predecessor, Imran Khan, was ousted in a no-confidence vote. Mr Sharif is expected to serve as premier until a general election is held sometime next year. OK, coming up, Musk mystery. Tesla CEO turning tail and dropping plans to sit on Twitter's board. Can his plans for Twitter still take flight? That story next. Welcome back. U.S. stocks beginning the trading week with losses, with slow growth fears once again taking center stage. Investors worried about how far the Fed will have to tighten economic conditions to get inflation rising prices under control ahead of brand new U.S. consumer inflation numbers out tomorrow. U.S. bond yields reflecting that concern, hitting a three-year high today. The message there Interest rates are going higher. Energy markets are also under some pressure today, reflecting ongoing demand concerns, obviously dried, tied to growth concerns. Both Brent and U.S. crude currently, as you can see, down by more than three and a half percent. We're also keeping an eye on Twitter shares today, volatile in early trade, currently trading higher by some 2.1 percent amid news that Elon Musk will not take a seat on the company's board. 
Elon hitting out the edit button on his plans to transform Twitter, among other things. But he remains the firm's largest shareholder. He will surely continue to ruffle feathers, I think, at the very least. Claire Sebastian joins us on this now. I think the initial concern was that if he's not going to take the board seat, perhaps he's going to sell his uh, portion of shares. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, I did see he tweeted a handover mouth emoji when the news from Twitter came out as well. So he was obviously dying to say something, but didn't. Has this gone hostile? That is the uh, that is the big question here, Julia. Not so much that he will sell his uh, stake, but that he might build up more of a stake. Mm. Part of the uh, the restrictions that were on him. Bear in mind, if you become a board member in a company, there are a number of restrictions placed on you. You do have to act in the best interest of the company. You have to do things like help hire a CEO, turn up to board meetings. Uh, you know, all all sorts of different restrictions. And one of the restrictions on Musk was that he wasn't going to be allowed to build up his stake beyond fourteen point nine percent. So there is speculation out there uh, that he was put off by that restriction and wanted to perhaps build up a bigger stake. This is, of course, a company that he can well afford as the world's richest man. So, so that's part of it. But a very fast turnaround. He was offered uh, the board seat earlier in the week. By, by Saturday, he was supposed to take it up. But apparently, according to the CEO of Twitter in his statement on the morning that he was supposed to take up that seat, uh, he then declined. So we don't know exactly why he hasn't said. He's been quite restrained uh, on Twitter ever since that. But as you say, it's possible that we might find out more about this. Oh, my goodness. I mean, over the weekend, he was completely unrestrained. At one point, he was suggesting that they should turn their San Francisco headquarters into a homeless shelter because, quote, no one turns up. No one shows up anyway. And Jeff Bezos chimed in and said, actually, they'd done that. They tried that at Amazon and it works quite well. I mean, he was sort of having some fun and games here. I think he's not going to go quietly. Twitter's response to this. We're going to have distractions ahead. Yeah, the CEO said there will be distractions ahead in his statement, but our goals and priorities remain unchanged. He said, let's tune out the noise and stay focused on the work and what we're building. Now, Elon Musk, uh, in, in, in terms of sort of restraints or otherwise, has actually deleted the tweet where he put up a poll uh, where, where he, was, he was asking people if Twitter's uh, headquarters should be turned uh, into a homeless shelter. But nevertheless, Jeff Bezos did reply to that and he said, or do a portion. He said, worked out great and makes it easy for employees who want to volunteer. That's a reference to the fact that Amazon uh, has actually uh, got a homeless shelter attached to one of its offices uh, in downtown Seattle. So, so that has clearly worked for them. That's something they've been they've been doing for for a number of years. But but it was sort of the sense that you got from Musk's original tweet and, and many of his tweets actually leading up to this was that he was sort of criticising uh, Twitter. And I think it's very telling as well what the CEO said uh, in another part of his statement that they believed that having Elon as a fiduciary of the company uh, was the best path forward. Better in than out, they thought. But ultimately, Elon Musk declined. I think he called Elon noise there. And deleting is the equivalent of edit, I think, in Elon Musk's world. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Now the son of Beatles legend John Lennon has broken his vow never to sing his father's iconic song, Imagine, by performing the peace anthem in honour of Ukraine. Take a listen. Imagine all the Julian Lennon says he's been disturbed by the unimaginable tragedy, quote, of Ukraine. He also said Russia has committed murderous violence. The performance was part of a Stand Up for Ukraine, a social media rally by Global Citizen to raise money for the country and refugees. A beautiful gesture, we think. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.